Well, this morning we continue our series, Ethics in Room 21C. And so if you have your Bible, why don't you turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 20, which is on page 61 if you're grabbing the Bible from in front of you. It's called Ethics in 21C. Ethics because we're looking at the basic principles of good and evil, how we live our lives based upon those, and especially looking at the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament and how they contribute to our understanding of ethics. And 21C, Room 21C, because we're looking at how these commands apply to us today in the 21st century. And so as we turn to Exodus 20, let me pray as we begin our time this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come together as your people to hear from you. And so, Father, I pray now that as we open your word together, that you would open our eyes, that you'd open our ears, that you'd open our hearts, and allow us to respond to what you have for us. Father, we we thank you that you're God who speaks through your word, that we don't have to guess about who you are. You tell us in your word. And so we just pray that you bless this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that's become popular to say about Christianity, you might have heard this before, is that Christianity is about a relationship, it's not about rules, right? It's kind of a catchy phrase that a lot of people like to say, and I think it's really helpful because one of the things that it really drives that is that fundamentally Christianity is about a relationship with the Lord God through Jesus Christ. And it wants to really emphasize that at the heart of what we do and who we are, it's about a relationship with God, not just about rules. And so it's a really helpful thing to say. The only trouble comes that as soon as you've said that, you start reading through the Bible and you recognize there's actually a lot of rules in Scripture as well. And so the question becomes, how do we fit these things together? How do we fit together this idea that Christianity is about a relationship? And yet when we read through Scripture, it seems like there's a lot of rules. And in particular, this week in in, in this series, we're looking at the Ten Commandments, which is a list of ten rules. And so how do these things fit together? If it's about a relationship, how important are these rules? Uh, Do we need to still keep them, or are they just kind of optional? How do we kind of think about these things fitting together? And while we won't be able to say everything that there is to say about this topic, I want to help us notice a few things about the Ten Commandments specifically that hopefully will help us think about this relationship. The first thing I want us to notice is this, that the Ten Commandments are not a list of things that we need to do in order to earn God's favor. Now, sometimes people think about the commands in the Bible like that, as if, if, if I just do enough good things, then God will start to love me, and then he'll save me, and he'll rescue me, as if I can somehow do enough of these rules so that God, I can earn his, his favor, I can earn God's salvation. And that is not the way that rules in the Bible function. They're never a way to earn God's salvation. And when you think about the book of Exodus in particular, it's interesting to think about the timeline of events to help illustrate this. And so Exodus starts with God's people in slavery in the land of Egypt. And and they're crying out in desperation, and God hears their cry. And so what does God do? Well, he comes to Egypt, he rescues them from Pharaoh, he brings them into the wilderness through the Red Sea, and he brings them to Mount Sinai, and he enters into a covenant relationship with his people. And it's once they're there at Mount Sinai that he gives them the Ten Commandments. In other words, God didn't come to his people in Egypt and say, well, you know what, here are the Ten Commandments, and as soon as you learn to keep these properly, as soon as you learn to keep the Ten Commandments, and I'll give you a time period that you have to keep them for, once you've done that, then I'm going to come back and rescue you because you've done enough good things to be rescued from slavery. No, that's not what happens. God graciously rescues his people based upon nothing other than his love for them. 
And once he's already saved them, he gives them the Ten Commandments to govern how they're going to live as his people. And so recognizing it's not a way of earning God's grace, it's a response to God's grace. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, and we talked about it just a little bit, that these commandments are intimately related to the covenant relationship that God has with his people. Now, when we picture the Ten Commandments, and I don't know how you picture the Ten Commandments, oftentimes we probably picture them as kind of this written list of rules. Maybe you've had it on your classroom wall when you were in school, or maybe you just picture you know, the tablets uh, of stone with the, the Ten Commandments etched into them. And it's okay to picture them that way, but one of the things that happens when you picture the Ten Commandments is just this list of rules, this list of do's and don'ts, is it can kind of feel impersonal. As if this is kind of just this standalone list, it's just the rules of right and wrong, not really connected to anything else. And the problem with that is when you look at the Bible, these commandments are so connected to God's relationship with his people. As I said before, God leads his people out of Egypt. He brings them through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, and he brings them to Mount Sinai. And there's this moment when God actually appears to his people when he gives them the Ten Commandments. We read about this in Exodus chapter 19, just one page back, where God's presence powerfully shows up at Mount Sinai as the people are gathered at the base of the mountain. Uh, Verse 18 is a good example of this. It says, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And so you have this picture of God's powerful presence descending on the mountain. And when you read in chapter 20, verse 1, it says, And God spoke all these words. It means God spoke these words to his people as he's present with them. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And it goes on with the Ten Commandments. And so recognizing, first of all, like we said, that the Ten Commandments are not a way for us to earn God's favor. They're not a way for us to make ourselves good enough so that God will accept us. And they're also intimately connected with the relationship God has with his people. And I think when we remember those two things, it's going to help us a lot as we think about what does it mean to follow these commandments today? Because when you recognize these things, you realize that rules and relationship, they're not actually opposed to each other. The rules aren't the way that we enter into relationship with God, but once we have a relationship with him, these rules and keeping them is a way that we show our love for him and our appreciation for what he's done. They govern the relationship as it moves forward. Uh, Those are two things. And finally, as we've seen over the past number of weeks, and hopefully as we'll see today, that these rules are not arbitrary. Sometimes people read the Bible and they think, well, it's just so many pointless rules. There's so many things that you have to do, and it's just a bunch of arbitrary rules, and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, We see that the rules in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament and other places, show the character of our God and invite us as God's people to emulate God's character to the watching world. And not only that, when we live in accordance with God's laws, it's actually the best way for us to live as humans because God is the one who created us. And so as we think about the the ninth commandment today specifically, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, let's keep these things in mind as we move forward. Uh, But let's now read Exodus 20, verse 16 in your Bibles. It's on page 61, and it says this, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Uh, It seems so simple, and in in so many ways it is a simple command. A lot of the commands are so simple, aren't they? Uh, But they're difficult for us to to comprehend and to actually live out. Now, a lot of times when people are summarizing the ninth commandment, they summarize it as a command, thou shall not lie, or you shouldn't lie. 
And there's definitely an aspect of that within the ninth commandment. We're going to talk about that. But the thing I want us to recognize is that that's not exactly how the command is phrased. It says specifically, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And what this does, the way it's worded, it kind of presupposes a legal or a judicial context, which I think is really interesting. Because what this is doing is it's saying that for God's people, everyone deserves the right to fair and honest representation and testimony in judicial settings, in the court of law. And so what's happening here with this, with this commandment is it's not only a commandment about truth, as we probably all recognize, it's also a commandment about justice. Because in the ancient world, as it sometimes is still the case today, justice depends upon people speaking the truth in these types of settings. If people lie in these types of judicial and legal settings, justice does not happen. And so your outline says this, in some ways, uh, the ninth commandment promotes justice for all people. Now, this might seem a little bit odd for us to think about, but I want us to try to think about what it would be like in that ancient setting. Because the truth is, for most of us today, when we think about justice happening, or when we think about a courtroom, one of the things that we recognize is that a lot of times people will lie. And if you watch any TV show that has any kind of courtroom scene or any crime that's going on, one of the things that all these shows have in common is that people are lying all the time. The idea is that if you want justice, you can't rely on what people are saying because people are always going to be lying. And so in these shows, what happens? Well, this person says this, this person says this. They're conflicting views. And so what do you have to do? Well, you have to try to find, you know, maybe some video footage of what happened. Or maybe you need to find some DNA evidence. Maybe you need to dust for fingerprints. Maybe you need to match ballistics of uh, bullets to gun. You need to do all these things because the implication of these shows is that if you're relying on human testimony to, for justice, you're not going to have justice. But think about how many of these techniques and and things are relatively modern. And think about the ancient world context. If you want justice in your legal system, it's imperative that people speak the truth. It still helps a lot today, and we have other ways, of course, to kind of help and to manage things. But in the ancient world, if you didn't have people speaking the truth and testifying truthfully, any hope of justice would be gone. Uh, We see an example of this in in the book of Kings, where we're introduced to King Solomon, who is the wisest king that was, was ever uh, living in, in, in Israel. And in Solomon, his wisdom is displayed in, in various ways, but one of the classic ways that Solomon's wisdom is displayed is in settling a case between two women who come to him. And these two women come to him, and they, they have one child with them, and there's a dispute about who is the true mother of this child. Now, you can imagine today if, if there was a court case where two women were disputing about who was the mother of a child, it would actually probably be one of the most simple cases that you could ever solve, right? You do a quick DNA test, and then, you know, 10 minutes later, we get the results back, and then, boom, we have the answer. It's really obvious who the mother of this child is. Now, but think about Solomon in his context. He doesn't have any of that. He just has two women who are telling opposite stories, and he needs to decide who is telling the truth and who isn't. And in the context, Solomon does some pretty wise things and he figures out who's telling the truth and who isn't telling the truth. But often the case was in in those contexts, people were not always as wise as Solomon. And in cases like this where people lied to each other, where they lied against each other, oftentimes unjust sentences were passed and things happened that shouldn't have happened. 
And so when you read through the Old Testament, you, you recognize that there's a lot of verses that talk about the necessity of not bearing false witness against one another. There's so many verses that talk about this. We'll see a whole bunch from the, from the book of Proverbs throughout this message, which, which just kind of has these proverbial sayings that talk about the dangers of false witnesses, that talk about how important it is to tell the truth. But we also see this expounded a lot more in the books of the law. In the book of Deuteronomy especially, we see this commandment, the ninth commandment, expounded in Deuteronomy 20, verse 15 to 19. Listen to what it says. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in a connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse another person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. And the judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So we have here a few kind of regulations that were put in place. First, there was this idea that you needed at least two or three witnesses to establish a charge. And this is, again, to just ensure that people were not just rising up and just making these baseless accusations against their neighbors. You need at least two or three witnesses, which means that if you just have your own crazy idea or you want to accuse somebody, you can't just do that by yourself. Uh, you, you need other people to collaborate what you're saying. And so you have this regulation, but even still, inevitably, there would be times when testimony would conflict. There'd be people who would be saying opposing things in these settings. And, and in those cases, the most diligent care had to be taken that decisions would be made to honor what was actually true. And we also see the punishment for those who committed false witness. And the punishment was that whatever you were trying to have happen to the person you were accusing, that would be the punishment that would come to you. And you might say, this sounds like a bit of a harsh punishment. Maybe you think that's a fair punishment. But you've you got to think about this in the sense that justice is what's at stake here. Uh, particularly justice for those who are the most vulnerable in society. Because I want, I want us to think about this. When we think about the ninth commandment, it was good for everybody, right? Everybody benefited when the ninth commandment was kept, but particularly those who are most vulnerable in society. Uh, the poor, the orphans, the widows, the foreigners, the minorities, those are the ones who benefited the most when this commandment was kept. Uh, because also it was the case that these were the ones that were hurt the most when it wasn't. There's a story from the book of Kings that illustrates this well, and it's about another king in Israel, this time a king named Ahab. And Ahab was a king who was not uh, very well uh, liked by, by many people. He didn't have a great reputation. And he lived in a palace, and beside this palace lived a man named Naboth who had a vineyard. And Naboth was, uh, you know, just kind of your average regular person. He had this vineyard. And so Ahab was looking at this vineyard, and he said, I would really like to have this vineyard to add it to my palace. I'm going to make it into a nice garden. I'll kind of fix it up. And so he approaches Naboth. He says, Naboth, how much would you want for this vineyard? How much do you want to sell it for? And Naboth says, well, you know, I'm flattered that you want to buy my vineyard. But, you know, to be honest, this is family land. And I can't sell land that's been in my family for generations. And so I'm, I'm going to just say, no, I'm sorry. I don't want to sell you the vineyard. And so Ahab hears this news and he's disappointed. And he's kind of sulking around the palace. And he's, he's really upset and he's distraught. And, and his wife notices this. And his wife, whose name is Jezebel, comes to him and says, Ahab, what's wrong? What's going on? And Ahab explains the situation. And he tells her all, all these things that have happened. And she asks him a question. She says, do you not now govern Israel? 
In other words, she's saying, aren't you the king? Like, can't you handle situations like this? Can't you make it so that you get your way in a situation like this? And, and Ahab doesn't do anything. So Jezebel takes matters into her own hands. And what she does, she gathers together a group of, of people. And they say, we're going to have a little bit of a trial scene here. And we're going to get some false witnesses who are going to accuse Naboth. We're going to accuse Naboth of, of treason against the king and blasphemy against God. And, and if he would have actually done one of those things, then that would have been a punishment worthy of death. But we're going to accuse him of doing both of these things. And so what they do, they get together a group of people. The false witnesses rise up. Naboth is found guilty. And Naboth is put to death. The king and those in authority taking advantage of those beneath them. Now, now imagine the situation was reversed. Right? Imagine Naboth was in his vineyard one day. He looks over at the king's palace and thinks, man, I would really like to have a palace for myself. And he says, hey, let's, let's get some of my friends together and we're going to make some false accusations against the king and we're going to try to steal the palace from him through these false accusations, right? It, it sounds ridiculous. It would never work, right? This is something when, when people commit false witness, it's usually those in power who are exploiting those with, without power. And, and we are sad to say that this is not the only example of this kind of thing in the Old Testament. When you read through the prophets, and, and the prophets were always calling God's people back to faithfulness in God, so many of the prophets are, are complaining and they're mourning the fact that so many times it's the poor, the marginalized, the widows, the orphans who are being exploited in the land. And, and oftentimes the story ends where we just ended right now, without justice being served. Thankfully, in this case, there, there is a, a different ending to the story because God sends the prophet Elijah to confront Ahab. And listen to what God tells Elijah to say in 1 Kings 21, verse 19. He says, And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs lift up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. See, what happened in, to Naboth will now happen to Ahab because of the laws of Deuteronomy chapter 20. This is what was to happen to, to, the, to the one who wanted these things to happen to Naboth. Uh, these things are now going to happen to him. Uh, this is the punishment that fits the crime. And when you think about this story, this story illustrates exactly what the ninth commandment was seeking to avoid. Right? This is the exact kind of situation that the ninth commandment is saying, this is not what should happen among God's people. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so when we, when we look at the ninth command, there's such an emphasis on justice among God's people. But, but as we said before, this commandment even goes beyond that, doesn't it? Because it's one thing to say we shouldn't lie in court, but if that's the only kind of place we apply this, there's still a whole other area of life where we kind of are left off the hook, so to speak. And the truth is, we know that lies in court can really destroy people's lives, but isn't it also true that lies outside of court, lies in everyday life, can also have the same effect? And so your outline says this, in a more general way, the ninth commandment recognizes the harmful power words can have. Now I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had someone spread a lie about you behind your back? If you have, you know it's an awful feeling. When I was in my fourth year of Bible college, we 
all had to take a test. It was an online test. It was kind of one of these standardized, standardized tests that was meant to track our progress over the four years that we had been there. And the idea was that you were supposed to have taken this test in your first year, which we all did, and then you were to take it again right before you graduated. And the idea was it was supposed to track your progress over those four years. Hopefully you'd made some improvements in various areas. And so it was all online. We had a certain amount of time that we had to take to do it. Uh, We did it kind of on our own. And you got your results back immediately, and there was a whole bunch of different categories. And so as you do, you get your results back. You kind of walk in the cafeteria or wherever, and you start, you know, asking your friends, how'd you do on on this section? How'd you do in this section? You're trying to compare grades with people. And I was having one of these conversations, and someone asked me, hey, how'd you do on this section? And I told them how I did, and they said, well, you know, that's pretty good, but I heard that you cheated and looked up the answers while you were taking the test. And I remember just the feeling that came over me in that moment because it wasn't actually true. Uh, That was a false statement that was made. Someone just said something in in the moment. And I remember thinking to myself, first of all, that's not true and feeling hurt, but also then starting to think, okay, who would be saying something like this behind my back? Who would be making something like this up? Why Why would people be saying this about me? And it was just this, this terrible feeling that came over me. I was a few days later, you know, at that conversation kind of uh, awkwardly ended and, and changed the subject. A few days later, that person came up to me and they said, hey, James, look, I just really want to apologize for, for what I said there. And it turned out to be a pretty big misunderstanding because there was a person in our, in our graduating class who had misunderstood the rules of this, of this exam. And they had assumed that it was supposed to be an open book test. And so quite innocently, as they were taking this test, uh, they just started looking up answers and, and writing them in and, and getting really good marks. And, and they kind of spread this story and told this story to a bunch of people, and they kind of resolved it all. The only problem was that that person's name was also James. <laughs> yeah, and so you can imagine as this story about James doing these things and, and all this thing on the test, as soon as that story starts to spread, all of a sudden the last names get switched and it becomes a story about me. And I tell you this not because I want you to feel bad for me, but I, I want you to recognize that even in a context where this, this lie was unintentional, it wasn't malicious, and it was apologized for, even in that context, the lie still hurt quite a bit. And I imagine you, there's, there's some of us in this room who have experienced far worse than that when it comes to people lying about them and slandering them. I imagine there's some people in this room that have lost friendships over lies. Uh, Maybe some of you have lost a reputation or maybe opportunities at work. Maybe some of you have even lost jobs because of lies that other people have told about you. I think what this command recognizes is that there's no end to the harm that could be caused by the hurtful words of other people. Uh, The book of Proverbs, again, Proverbs 25, verse 18 says, A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. If you think about those three things, a war club, a sword, and a sharp arrow, those are three things that really their only function is to cause harm and to cause pain, right? A war club, a sword, a sharp arrow, you really only use those things to cause pain. It's saying that's what a false witness is like. It's saying a false witness is actually like sticks and stones, right? We all know that saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. More like words will always hurt me, and usually even more so than sticks and stones would. 
And so the ninth commandment, it tells us not to lie in these official settings, in these official contexts where we're called to give testimony, but it also calls us not to lie against people in everyday life because both contexts can be just as devastating. Uh, Bible teacher Don Durham, he puts it this way. He says, the testimony the Israelite gives before the elders and the gates, which would have been kind of that official place where you would give testimony in the ancient world. He says, it's not to be considered something separate from his witness under less formal circumstances. In other words, it's saying it's not that we just have truth as a standard in this context, this official context, and not in other contexts. And what we see here is when we look at the ninth commandment, the ideal is actually truthfulness in all situations. And so we say say this in the outline. Your, Your outline says the ninth commandment calls for truth in all circumstances. And this sounds, again, this sounds pretty basic, but I think the truth is that for most of us, we have a little bit of a hierarchy in our minds of of what are the situations where the truth is really important and what are the situations where it's not as important, right? So maybe you'd say, well, I I would maybe lie to a teacher about an assignment being late, uh, but I would never lie about, you know, something else. I would never lie to a police officer. I would never lie to a judge. I would never lie to my spouse. But, you know, maybe I would lie to my parents. Or maybe I would lie to an acquaintance. Maybe I would do. And when we have sometimes these situations in our, in our lives where we think, okay, in this context, the truth is really important. In this context, the truth might not be as important. Right? Maybe, maybe we kind of do that. And, and the Bible is calling us for a higher standard than that. It's interesting because this is actually something that Jesus was facing in his days, something that he taught about in the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll read this from Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 to 37, when he says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. It's really interesting because Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And if you think about it, that actually sounds like pretty good advice. Right? We shouldn't swear falsely. We should perform to the Lord what we have sworn. And so the question is, why would Jesus have a problem with saying something like this? Why would Jesus say, don't take oaths at all? And the reason for that is because in Jesus' day, people had used oaths as a way of getting away with lying in everyday life. In other words, a person would say, well, if I've made an oath about something, if I've sworn an oath, then you can really trust what I have to say. But on the other hand, if I haven't made an oath about something, then I might be telling the truth, I might be lying, you just can't know for sure. And so Jesus is saying in a context where you need to make an oath in order for people to actually believe what you're going to say, he's saying it's better actually not to take oaths at all, but just speak the truth at all times. And I think if we think about it, we could probably all think of people in our lives who, you know, they could say, I, know, I swear I'm going to do it. You know, they'll, they'll you know, take an oath. They'll do whatever it needs to do to try to convince you that they're going to do something. And we still have a hard time believing them. And there's probably other people in your life where you just, they just say something. They don't have to swear it. They don't have to do anything. They'll just say something. And you know you could trust them because of who they are. I think that's what Jesus is is talking about here. He's saying, don't be the kind of person that you feel like you need to swear or take an oath in order for people to believe you. 
You should have the kind of character that when you speak the truth, when you speak, people assume you're speaking the truth because that's who you are. And again, in order for this to happen, it means truth in all aspects of life. Uh, not just where it's convenient, not just where you think it's more important than others, but truth in everything you do. Because we worship a God who is the truth. Uh, Jesus himself is called the truth. But what about when the truth hurts? Right, so we talked about the, the harmful power that false witness can have. We talked about the harmful power that lies can have in people's life. But what about where the truth can also be harmful to someone? Right, some of us have had people spread lies behind our back and it's really hurt. How many of you have had this truth spread about you behind your back and it hurt? Right, oftentimes it's the insults that are true that they're the ones that sting the most. Because if someone insults you with something that's not true, you can push back and say, well, that's not true, and you can defend yourself. If someone insults you with the truth, it's harder to push back. And oftentimes we just kind of accept it and think, yeah, that is true, and it it hurts a lot more. And and I want us to just think about it this morning, as we tell the truth, to think about, as Jesus calls us, and as the Bible calls us, to tell the truth in love, to use words in a way that build up. And I think there's been too many people, and sometimes particularly in the church we, we see this, where in the name of telling the truth, we cause all kinds of damage in people's hearts, in people's lives. And, and again, this is a bit of a fine line because I think in some cases we probably need more boldness. In some cases we actually need to step up and say things that are difficult. But sometimes we, we just have such a way of saying things so harshly and so rudely and then kind of just throwing up our hands and saying, hey, I'm just, I'm just telling the truth. And just to think about the the impact our words have. There's some things that are true that we probably don't need to speak about, especially in most circumstances. And those things that are true that are really difficult, making sure we say them in the right way, at the right time, and to the right people. Recognizing that there are some things that just frankly are are none of our business and, and should be talked about by other people recognizing that the way we speak, even when we're speaking the truth, can have profound impact in people's lives. Now, maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, this is all good, but I actually don't struggle with any of these things. I I never say anything bad about people. I never lie about people. I never told the fib in my life. Uh, If that's you, you might be lying to yourself right now. But maybe you're sitting here and and you're not feeling any conviction, and this is not kind of just going over your head. So let let me just ask you about this, though. Uh, what are you allowing yourself to listen to in conversation? Because this is, this is an interesting one because it's really easy sometimes to be part of a conversation and to stand back and say, well, I wasn't the one saying any of these things. Uh, someone might be just railing against someone else or slandering someone else, and we just are listening to it, and we say, well, I wasn't the one saying any of these things. And, and it's tricky as well because, let's be honest, it's nice to feel trusted by people, isn't it? Right? Someone comes to you and they say, you know, I just really want to talk to you. I really trust you. I really just, you know, feel like you're someone I can talk to. And then they just start opening up about things. And you're just like, it's nice to be trusted, but you just don't know how to deal with the information you're being given. Uh, The book of Proverbs, Proverbs 18, verse 8 says this, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. What are the words of a whisperer? Well, what is whispering used for? Usually slander, gossip, lies, these kinds of things. And it's saying the words of a whisper, those kinds of things are like delicious morsels. We know we shouldn't 
but they just seem so good. There's something about it that's so enticing. Information about other people's lives. We know we, it's really none of our business. We know really there's no reason for us to know these things, but there's something so appealing about it, something so intriguing that we just want to know. And so you have these situations where it feels so nice to be trusted by someone that they would share these things with you. It's so kind of nice feeling to know information about other people and to kind of have these things. And I just want to caution us and say, just because you're not the one saying the things, if you're part of those conversations, you have a responsibility. Right? And sometimes something as simple as asking a person, hey, have you talked to the person about it? Uh, can really steer a conversation in a better direction. Or if you're really brave, saying something like, hey, would you like me to go with you to talk to this person so you guys can resolve these differences? Now, of course, there's, there's going to be exceptions to every rule, and, and wisdom and speech is always going to be called for. But, but generally, saying the nice things about someone behind their back and saying the difficult things to that person one-on-one in person is going to be a good way to go. See, the ninth commandment, it's it's an amazing commandment because it recognizes the harmful power that words can have in people's lives. And it's saying we don't ever want to see words have that destructive force in someone's life. And, And when we think about the ninth commandment, it's not a commandment given because God is a God who loves to give commandments or that we just, you know, need to have a certain number of rules in the Bible and we need to fill them up. No, it's a commandment given because God is a God who loves truth and who loves justice. It's given because God knows that when justice doesn't happen, it's usually the marginalized that are the ones who are taken advantage of. And God is a God who cares for all. And so when we think about this commandment, I think what it's calling for is is the avoidance of bearing false testimony, but it's also calling for the truthful speech that builds others up to promote truth and justice in these official levels, but also to build people up in everyday conversation. Because the truth is, and we've mentioned it, the tongue can have a lot of power for harm, but the opposite is also true. We see this in Proverbs 12, verse 18. It says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And so you have these two opposites. The same tongue can, can give sword thrusts or it can bring healing. And so like I said before, the ninth commandment, it's, it's stated in the negative. It says, you shall not bear false witness. But I think if we, if we thought about things in the positive, we might come up with something like the final point in your outline that says this, the ninth commandment invites speech that brings help and brings healing. What we say carries immense power. And so my my encouragement to us is let's use that power this week to build people up and to bring help and healing and bring honor and glory to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of truth, that you are the God of justice, and Father, that you are the God of mercy. And that before we ever took one step towards you, before we had done anything Worthy, Father, that you sent your son Jesus and you died for us while we were still sinners. And so, Father, as we think about responding to this commandment, I pray that we would respond out of a heart of gratitude for what you've done and out of a love for you. Father, we wouldn't do this because we think we had to earn your, your favor, but because you've given it to us freely. 
And so, Father, I pray that you just be with us as we think about how we use our words this week. And, Father, I just also want to pray for those who are here right now who have had words spoken about them or against them in the past that have just caused so much hurt and pain. Father, for those who are right now thinking about those, those words, I pray that you would just bring healing in their hearts right now. Father, if there's a need to extend forgiveness, I pray that forgiveness would be extended. Father, if there's a need to let go of bitterness, I pray that that would be let go of. Holy Spirit, would you just bring healing in hearts that are broken this morning, I pray. And for all of us, Father, I pray that you just walk with us this week. Keep us in your care. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.